All right, so we have been um, going through a, a section of Scripture in Matthew called the, anybody remember? One person remembers. The one person is bold enough to say the Olivet Discourse. Very good. And so the Olivet Discourse is happening at the last 48 hours of Jesus's life. As you know, if you turn the page, when you get to Matthew 26, the events of Jesus's last hours begin to be recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew. So he's just he's in between the week that he rode into Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey before he's going to um, die on a cross and rise again on the third day. So right in that time frame, he goes and he spends um, lots of times on a place called the Mount of Olives. So if you're familiar with a, a map of Israel, the thing that unfortunately, I guess, or fortunately, it's good enough, that, that's iconic, that, that when we think of Jerusalem, we think of what? That golden dome that sits there, the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim's third most holy site that's there in Israel. Well, from the Dome of the Rock, if you could picture that sign or that picture in Israel, um, just on this side, there's a valley that comes down and comes up the other side. Anybody know what that valley's called? We say it all the time. The Kidron Valley. And the, in, on the other side of the Kidron Valley is a place called the Mount of Olives. It's a mountain. And on, from the Mount of Olives, you have the best view of old Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, um, the Dome of the Rock, that area. And on that mountain, just to um, the Temple Mount, where Solomon's Temple would have been in Jesus' day, Jesus spent lots of time there with his disciples. It was on the Mount of Olives, there was a famous garden. Jesus also spent much time in the Garden of Gethsemane, where, where Jesus um, sweat great drops of blood. Well, it was on this, gar- on this mountain um, opposite of the Kidron Valley that Jesus gathered with his disciples just two, three days before he was going to die on a cross. And, and Jesus had told the Pharisees um, in, in the last chapter that very soon that their house would be left desolate to them. And, and, and the Jewish culture of the first century understood very clearly that Jesus was saying that the temple that Solomon built and that Herod, Herod refurbished, one of the eight wonders of the world, was going to be left desolate. And to a disciple, in their mind, if the temple were to be left desolate, that must mean the end of the world is going to happen. And so the disciples, very curious and, and very concerned about this, this prophecy that Jesus gave, they, they call Jesus aside and they give him opportunity to take back what he said because it was too crazy what he said. It was too ominous and, and they couldn't wrap their minds around it. And so they told Jesus, they said, hey, are, did you really mean that? And then they ask him a three-part question that we've been dissecting for the last three weeks. They said, when will be the sign of your coming and what will be the time and the end of the age? A three-part question. And in Matthew 25, 24, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus begins to answer this three-part question. As we get into chapter 25 today, Jesus is still on the Olivet Discourse, the end of it. And he's going to give us three parables in chapter 25 that we're going to try to understand the best that we can today. But the, um, the idea in each one of them has to do with the rapture. Now, we spent last week, for those of you that were here last week, we spent last week going over um, the timing of what does the Bible teach about the timing of the rapture. Now, again, um, outside the church, people deny or say there's no rapture. But inside the church and inside anybody who, who, who fits in the, you know, the, category of the bride of christ inside the church there's there's no argument within the church with with church folks as far as as if there's going to be a rapture or not pretty much across the board everybody agrees the bible teaches that at some point jesus is going to come first thessalonians chapter five and we're going to be caught up together to meet the lord in the air and that we're going to meet him specifically the bible says in the clouds now jesus doesn't come all the way to the earth in the rapture we have what's called the second coming. And sometimes the two ideas get confused, the rapture and the second coming. And even as a, a pastor, teacher, you know, in, in talking about the rapture, sometimes I'll say when Jesus comes back, when Jesus comes back, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. So we kind of get the two ideas jumbled. So we just made it clear that, that in terms, the rapture, Jesus comes at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. He doesn't come to the earth. It says we meet him in the clouds. At the end of the seven-year tribulation period, the Bible says that Jesus comes on a white horse and the bride and the church comes with him riding on a white horse. And where does Jesus come at the end of the seven years? And that's what we, 
um, technically is the term the second coming of Jesus. It happens at the end of the seven years, and Jesus comes riding on a white horse, and we come on horses with him. And if you're there that day, Jesus is on his way, anybody? To a battle. What's it called? The Battle of Armageddon. Jesus is, is coming on a white horse, and he's going to meet Antichrist and his armies, and they're going to have, at the end of the seven years, a Battle of Armageddon. Now, if you're there at the Battle of Armageddon, there's only one thing you want to see that day. That's the back of Jesus. Because if you're on a horse and you're seeing Jesus' back, you're in good shape. If you're seeing anything else, you might be on the wrong side of the equation. So what we did last week was we looked at the three positions of where the church disagree about um, when the rapture happens. In the beginning, in the middle, and the end are the three traditional pre, mid, post-tribulation rapture theories. There's some new ones of late. Um, because the mid and the post have a lot of problem with a verse where God says in Thessalonians that he's not appointed you for wrath. And so it's very clear there in other places that God has not appointed you for wrath. The, the, the basic um, premise is that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation has tons, tons and tons and tons of typologies and examples of rapture and theory and, and then the, the Jewish wedding and Noah and the flood and on and on and on and on and on of the types of the rapture, and, and the, the idea is very clear that God knows how to preserve the righteous from the wicked, that God knows how to protect and to keep us from a time of his wrath. And so the new theories, the new ones, have to deal with this problem, and so now we have a fourth category that has come up of late, and it's called the pre-wrath theory. So I, I'm not, I don't have time today to go back into those. Um, I have some resources for you if you're interested. But we here are very um, staunch pre-tribulation rapture folks. I just believe it and, and very firmly that it's the only um, theory that fits Genesis to Revelation. We took about four or five reasons for that last week. You can get the tape if you weren't here, if you're interested. And we went over the four or five reasons why it has to be a pre-tribulation rapture before the wrath of God. So we're going to get into a little bit of that today um, and just continue verse by verse through um, the end of 24. And finally, uh, we spent four weeks in Matthew 24. We're going to get out of 24 today, hopefully finish 25 and be ready for um, the crucifixion of Jesus next week. Uh, as the story progresses in the Gospel of Matthew. So look, if you will, with me at Matthew twenty four forty five, And Jesus is speaking words in red. How many of you guys have Bibles that have words in red? Verse 45, 46, 47, words in red? How about chapter 25? All red, right? Okay, so this is Jesus talking. Who then is faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of. And he will cut him in two and appoint him. This guy ain't messing around, right? He'll cut him in two, literally, and and appoint him portions with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is talking about a servant who is in control of the things that his master has left to him. And this evil servant, and this word evil in the Greek here is not intrinsically somebody who's just a really bad evil person. It's somebody who at one point was good and and is, is behaving themselves badly. And, and so this particular servant, he wouldn't, if he's just evil and nasty guy, why would the master leave that guy in control? That's not what's going on. He's, he's, a, he's a servant who's earned the right to be the leader of the house. The master trusts him when he leaves. And so the master leaves for his business. And the servant believes that the master is not going to come back at a, at, immediately. And that he has some time to play and to do some evil things. And he begins to beat the servants. And he, he begins to act himself very badly believing, not believing that the master is going to come at any moment and catch him, right? You know, like, like when your kids call you and say, hey, dad, where you at? When are you coming home? Uh, I'm in the driveway. I'm like, you know, two hours away. I'm in the driveway. What do you, what's going on? What do you mean? Oh, you are? Okay, I gotta go, you know, or I never tell them when I'm going to be gone or when I'm coming home. You know, I want it to be a surprise all the time. So they have to behave themselves. So, hey, turn with me, if you will, real quick. First John chapter three 
And in 1 John chapter 3, we, we get um, the beginning of something that, that I'm going to try to introduce you guys today. It's called the doctrine of eminence. Somebody say doctrine of eminence. So the word is, the word is kind of, it sounds like immediate almost, right? Um, we have a doctrine in, in Corinthians, Philippians, that Jesus is the preeminent one. This is different. It's not preeminence or the supremacy of Christ. This is the idea that, that Jesus could come back. At any moment. So eminence just means the immediate return. The dictionary definition of the word eminent is about to happen. Likely to happen at any moment. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3 it says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everybody say purifies himself. Okay, so everyone who has this hope, this is the the hope of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that the Bible says in in Peter, and that Peter said in the last days, that that men will rise up scoffers, and they'll mock us as Christians who believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And they'll say, we know he's not coming because he hasn't already come, which is a crazy idea to me that that's the reasoning behind why he won't come because he hasn't already come. But that's what they'll say, and that's what they are saying. And, And so... They're actually fulfilling prophecy when they begin to mock the fact that Jesus is coming back. But the doctrine of eminence, and this is the, the important one. I want you guys to know this one um, in Titus. And Titus is hard to find. If you want to just hang out, I'll be right back there. If you can find Titus um, after 2 Timothy. In Titus 2.13, it says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul here who's training a young pastor, Timothy or Titus, he tells Titus one of the things, and, you know, if you read through, through Titus, it's a great book of just practical wisdom. It says, do, you know, uh, it says, you just practical advice, speak those things which, which are proper for sound doctrine. The older men be sober, be temperate, sound in faith and patient. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent, behavior, not slanderous, given to much wine that they admonish the young women to love, and on and on and on with this practical advice in Christian living. And as Paul is giving Timothy this practical advice in Christian living, he, or Titus, I'm sorry, he wants Titus to have something in his, in his bag, something in his life that is important to Paul to pass on to Titus. And he says to have this hope in you, looking for the appearing of our, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he wanted Titus to live in such a way that, that, that Jesus could come back, that he was looking to the heavens, he was looking to the clouds, preparing himself for the return of Jesus Christ in the rapture. This idea that I read in, in 1 John and here in Titus is called the doctrine of eminence. It means that we live in such a way um, today as a people that we believe Jesus could come back at any moment. And what John tells us is for those of us that live our lives today as if Jesus could come back, it purifies how you live. And, and even though they mock, and even though I share all the time, Lydia's dad, who is um, a pastor and leader, and um, he in, 19, in the 70s believed that Jesus was coming back. And so Lydia's mom and dad decided as young Christians that they weren't going to have any kids because it was a waste because Jesus was coming back. And thankfully, they, 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 they read another verse where Jesus said to occupy until I come, to live your lives, be prepared for the, for the imminent return, but, but live lives, plant vineyards, build houses, live life. And, and they had a family and they had kids and people could mock the fact that in 1970, Lydia's dad lived his life in such a way that he didn't know how to proceed the next day because he believed that Jesus was coming back. But let me tell you what it's done in Lydia's dad's life since 1970 to today. What has it done? Exactly what John tells us it would do. It's purified how he's lived. He's lived every day believing that Jesus could come back. And, and, and the preeminence, and listen, the pre-tribulation rapture theory is the only one that would support this biblical doctrine of preeminence. If Jesus comes back in the middle of the tribulation period, if, if Jesus comes back post or pre-wrath in the tribulation period... If Jesus comes back post-tribulation, then listen, you do not, you can be like this wicked servant here at the end of Matthew. You can begin to beat your servants and behave yourself badly because you know that Jesus can't come back today. Jesus can only come back if he's coming back in the middle or the end of the tribulation. You have some things that you can wait to happen before you know Jesus is coming back. 
And that's a dangerous way to live. It's a dangerous way to live. And so that preeminence is, is very important. And we see that again. We're seeing that taught in this section. The whole point of Jesus in words of, in red of giving these parables, there, 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 there are several. And we're going to see another one, another example of somebody who, who didn't live in such a way of preparedness that Jesus would come back at any time. And, and, and we want to live in, in a way, and again, the pre-tribulation rapture theory is the only one, Genesis to Revelation, that fits, that allows you to live with a doctrine of preeminence, or not preeminence, but with a doctrine of eminence, the doctrine that Jesus could come back today. Amen? So then the next, we get into chapter 25, and it says, we get this parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. And again, it's the same idea. It says, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of the virgins were wise and five were foolish. Now that word foolish, the actual word in the Greek is, it, 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 it's, it's pretty strong. I mean to call somebody a fool, I think we use it pretty flippantly nowadays. Hey fool, my wife calls me fool all the time. Shut up fool. But this word is technically in the English language is moron. And so Jesus is calling and saying here that some were moronic, they were, they were idiots, they were morons, and it says some were wise and some were morons. And it says in verse 3, and it says those who were morons took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took, took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, no, lest there should be not enough for us. And you go rather to those for, for us. And you go out rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went out to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, surely to Surely I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you neither know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Look at verse number 13. And let me ask you, if you, if you read that words in red, um, Jesus telling us, telling you and me, to watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which he's coming. If, if Jesus comes in a, in a mid or a post-tribulation rapture, that, that's not true. If he's coming in the middle, we can know. We can see when the rapture starts, we can count three and a half years. We know that he's coming sometime, you know, right in there when, when the abomination of desolation happens. The three and a half year, the Antichrist goes into the Holy of Holies and declares himself to be God. If he's coming at the end, you know you've got seven years. And, and there's really no need to really watch and prepare until we see some of the prophecies being fulfilled that are predicted about the seven-year period. The big one being, and one of the, the easiest ones to, to look for, is that the Antichrist, one of the first things he's going to do is he's going to make a treaty for seven years with the nation of Israel, which will enable them to do what? To rebuild their temple. And it, 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 it has to happen for the Bible to be true. Because the Bible says very clearly that at the three-and-a-half-year mark that the Antichrist is going to go into the Jewish temple. Now, today, do we have a Jewish temple? And let me tell you something about the Jews. They will not build a temple anywhere on planet Earth unless it is in the same exact location that Solomon's temple was built. The spot where the Holy of Holy, Holies is in Solomon's temple is the very spot where in Genesis 22, Abraham brought Isaac. And seven times in Genesis 22, God says, Abraham, take now your son, your only son, to the place, the place, the place, the place. And he goes up onto Mount Moriah and God says, I will show you the place. And Isaac, who's a picture of Jesus that would be sacrificed, and Abraham takes him up onto Mount Moriah and on the GPS X location on planet Earth, Abraham offers or almost offers Isaac as a sacrifice that marks the place of the Holy of Holies and the Jews will not build a temple unless it sits over that geographic location. Now, there are some factors that, you know, I don't need to get into really, but I'll just tell you because they come up. It, what happened is Herod, when Herod rebuilt Solomon's temple, one of the things that Herod did is he did major excavating. He had them big earth movers, those big tractors that we have today. 
and, and seriously, he moved a big section of Mount Moriah, and he excavated the entire top half of it in order to flatten it out and make it bigger and, and, and secure it before they, they rebuilt the temple. So there has been some geographical changes, but it has to be in that location. Now, some believe that where the Dome of the Rock sits today in Israel is in the way. And that in order for the Jews to rebuild their temple, that, that God is going to have to do something or something's going to have to happen where the Dome of the Rock is going to have to be destroyed, go away, be cleared. Uh, there's another camp, the one that I kind of fit into, is, is that if you look at it, the Bible says in Ezekiel about the third temple, he says to, to draw a line and, and to leave the outer courts out because it's been given over. And so it would, it would make sense that where the Dome of the Rock is actually off to the side and just to the north of that, there's a place there now It has a dome on it. It's called the Dome of the Spirits. And that Dome of the Spirits actually sits over the place that was the Holy of Holies. And, and that, that there's plenty enough room just, to the, just right next to the Dome of the Rock for, for the Israel to rebuild their temple. So, um, all right, I got off on temple stuff a little bit, but... Verse 13 is what we were talking about. Watch, therefore, you do not know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Hey, turn with me, if you will, real quick to Luke chapter 21, verse 34. I'm going to wait for you on this one. Luke 21, 34. Luke 21. In Luke chapter 21, Luke is recording the same conversation that Matthew records in chapter 24. It's the Olivet Discourse as recorded by Luke. And as we know, many of the Gospels have um, similar accounts of the same event, right? From a different perspective, a different view, a different ear, um, a different angle the Holy Spirit wants to give it to us at. In Luke's Gospel, as he's recording for us the Olivet Discourse, he's talking about um, what you and I are supposed to do. And listen, here's the lesson about the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And this is what I want to kind of pass on. Now, what I don't want to do, I don't want to be guilty of using any of the scriptures that we're going to study today as a scare tactic to tell you to to turn or burn, to get right or get left. That's that's not the idea. But I will say this, that, that there is within the text a concern of Jesus for us to be ready. And there will be, and when he says one will be taken and one will be left, Two will be laying in a bed, one will be taken, one will be left. Two will be working in a field, one will be taken, one will be left. The reality is that in the rapture, for those ten virgins, ten virgins, five had their oils and five were ready, five went into the wedding chamber and five were outside where the door was shut. Noah and the ark, Noah preached for 120 years that, that, that a flood was coming that was going to destroy. And, and for years and years and years, nobody came. So Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives entered the ark, and God did what? God shut the door, eight people inside the ark. And the water began to to rise for the first time in human history. Water began to fall from the sky. No rain before then. And as the people realized what Noah had been preaching for 120 years was true, they began to run to the boat. And when they got to the boat, what happened? It got, it got very violent, I'm sure. And I'm sure the reality is when you pop the DVD in in heaven that, that it won't be a pretty movie to watch because of the violence and the death that was taking place outside the ark as people were flocking to the ark to, to try to finally get in because they realized what, Mo, what Noah had been preaching for 120 years is true, that there was going to be a flood. There was going to be a coming disaster. And instead, the waters just would have sloshed them around until they drowned or died or were smashed against a rock or the side of the boat. An ugly scene, but a real a reality and a picture that God says there comes a point where he shuts the door. And in the rapture, there, there is a message. There is a biblical message that, hey, we want to be ready. You know, for me personally, and, and you know, again, I, I'm not into scare tactics. I'm not into making you feel guilty. I'm not into, you know, those types of things because I don't think they work. I think what works in your life and what the Bible says that you and I really respond to is the love of Jesus. The Bible says it's the love of God that constrains us. It's, it's knowing how powerfully and, and, and miraculously God loves you that, that you just like, I don't deserve that love. Who am I that God would even think of me yet? This God of heaven loves me so greatly and it humbles you and it, and it changes your heart and it changes your life to know the great love of God over your life. 
So all the scare tactics and all the hellfire and brimstone um, messages, you know, they, they scare you and they make you feel guilty. And, and how long does that last? Probably till about the time you hit the, the unlock button on the key fob by the time you get to the parking lot. Because now you're thinking about lunch. And now you're, 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 you're thinking about what's for lunch and life goes on. And those scare tactics, they, they don't effectively change anybody's life. But, but as, as, as God's Holy Spirit begins to show you and teach you and pour into your heart, there is a reality, just like Noah. For 120 years, God warned that this thing was going to happen, and nobody believed and it came. It's a biblical picture of the rapture, that the rapture is going to happen. People say, well, Noah went through the rapture. He went through, or he went through the tribulation. Yeah, there's going to be a group of people. And, 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 and the Israel as a whole, Israel as a part, they're going to go through the seven years. They're going to be here. They're going to rebuild their temple. 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to be raised up upon the scene. Re- Revelation chapter 11. Two witnesses are going to come. God's going to bring two witnesses from the Old Testament who are going to come back and, and are going to preach in, in front of the, the temple that's rebuilt in Jerusalem. But you know who was contemporary with Noah? Who, who was there on planet Earth the same time Noah was building his boat? A man by the name of Enoch. What do you remember about Enoch? The Bible says that Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. Hebrews chapter 11, God gives us another um, uh, reminder of Enoch, that Enoch was a man who walked with God and he was not because God took him. One of only two people of, that we know of in all of human history that, that went to heaven without dying. Enoch and Elijah. And Moses is a little question mark because there's, there's some controversy biblically over what happened to Moses. The Bible says that, that, that God took the body of Moses, God himself, and, then, and, and God and Moses went away. And then it says Moses died and God buried Moses. And then later it says that, that, that the angel, was it Gabriel or Michael? Which one's a fighter? That Michael was fighting with Satan over the body of Moses. Okay, side note, doesn't really matter, parenthetical Three people, two for sure, never tasted death. They, they went to heaven without dying. Enoch and Elijah. Moses is kind of questionary. But Enoch, who lived contemporary with Noah, is a picture of the rapture. He, went, he was taken before the flood came. The bride of Christ, you and I, we're going to be taken before Jesus comes. And listen, if you're part of the bride of Christ, if you're, if you're a born-again believer, because Jesus said you must be born again. Sometimes I talk to people and they say, oh, I'm Christian. I'm just not the born-again type. I say, well, that's the only type. Because Jesus said, you must be born again. And if Jesus says you must, do yourself a favor. And let me do you a favor because I do love you. If Jesus says you must be born again, guess what? You must be born again. That's the only type of believer. So, but if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you're a part of the body of Christ, when the rapture happens, guess where you, what happens to you? You go up. You, all of you. The ones, what about the ones that aren't really you know, toeing the line and reading their Bible 17 hours a day and praying 42 days a week? What about them? Do they go up? Yes. What about, what about the Christian who's a believer who's uh, you know, not walking it perfect? Do they go up? Yes. Because if you're a part of the body... When, 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 the, when the wedding happens, you don't take the parts of your bride into the wedding chamber that you like. And, and if, you know, if her toes stink, you leave them outside the wedding chamber. You, know, you leave her armpits and her toes outside and you take the rest of her into the wedding chamber. That's not, you, you can't take the body and leave the other half. You, the body goes up. Now listen, I want to encourage you with that. I want to tell you the truth about that. But I'm also going to tell you this. The Bible says for you to watch and pray. Jesus said for you to pray that you would be counted worthy to escape these things. And for me personally, I want to test. I want to make sure I'm ready. And I want to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm going up. And again, not to scare us, but a real reality check. That, 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 that if Jesus came back right now, would you be ready? You know, there's another thing that's going around. And um, I don't want to pick on somebody because I did hear it here. I also heard it back home, California. And somebody said... Um, you know, the new thing, and I've heard two, two people now this week say it, and so I'm going to address it. And, and the saying goes something like, I don't even know it, but it's like, be, be, believe in, hope for a pre-tribulation rapture, but be prepared for a post-tribulation rapture. Anybody heard that? Let me see that going around. I've seen it on Facebook. I've seen somebody, you know, 
But listen, this is, this is the, the kind of the irony of the whole thing. Be prepared for a post-tribulation rapture. I just want to ask you one simple question. How do you plan to prepare? What are you going to do? How do you prepare? Read the book of Revelation and tell me how you prepare for that. You know, I got to be real careful because I'm in church, man. But I got one suggestion that you might prepare. You might limber up and get, you know, get limber. And I want you could you could figure the rest out or not by yourself what you do with that limberness. But that's the only way you're going to prepare. Pucker up and. Get ready, get a fork, put a fork in it because you're done. Now, I'm going to share it real quick. Turn with me if you guys will. Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to go through this. We're going to get back to Matthew, and then we're going to get out of here. Oh, Luke 21. Okay, let, let's do that because I did get off. Okay. That was about the warning. I'm just going to read it. And then hold the finger in Revelation and Luke. Thankfully for my wife's keeping me on track. Luke 21, verse 34. It says, but take heed to yourself. Everybody say, take heed lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the cares of this life, and the day come on you, what? Unexpectedly. Again, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, kick a dead horse, beat a dead drum, but listen, there's only one way that that day can come upon you unexpectedly. The only way that day can come upon you unexpectedly is if Jesus could absolutely come back at any moment. Amen? If Jesus is coming back in the middle or the end of the tribulation period, at some point you could be obedient to that scripture, but not today. So here Jesus is giving warning. Take heed to yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with. And and then it's interesting, words in red, Jesus mentions three things that he's concerned about. Carousing. What What does carousing mean here in this verse? Carousing means living and having, living with somebody you're not married to. Having sex outside of marriage, that's carousing. It's, it's a, it's a um, sexual immorality. So Jesus mentioned sexual immorality. If you're shacking up with somebody, you're living with somebody you're not married to, you're having sex outside of marriage, that's not a good place to be when the, when the rapture happens. The second thing he mentions is drunkenness. And drunkenness, what does that mean? We need some theologians in here to dissect that one. Drunkenness means drunkenness. Okay, put the bottle down. There's no answer in the bottom of it. Okay, so he says drunkenness and the cares of this life. Now, the cares of this life maybe would deal with with power. And usually the big three are sex, money, and power. That's what John tells us in 1 John, sex, money, and power, the three things that Satan uses, the three plays that he has. Jesus seems to cover them. The cares of this world, your job, your money, your finances, the things, your kids, the life that that you're living, all those cares of this world get in the way of your effectiveness for the Lord. And so Jesus mentions those three things. Now, again, as a warning, be ready. When I I first became a Christian, we are going to get to Revelation. When I first became a Christian, I, I went through a period of life where um, I was I was really in the world as, as a young man. No, no church growing up, no God. Um, without getting into too many details, just my brother sold drugs in the neighborhood. My my no God, no church. South L.A. where I grew up um, ran as fast and as hard as I knew how. When I was 20 years old, I asked Jesus in my heart to be my Lord and Savior by the grace and mercy of God. And then I moved out of L.A. because of the circumstance that I was in. And a Christian kid that I grew up with named Jason Havertape, who was my neighbor, asked Jesus about a year before I did. And he called me and he said, hey, why don't you come up here and move up to Hemet and, and we'll, we'll go to church together and you could, you know, get off drugs and get your life straightened up. And so I went to Hemet and I was, I was living with Jason in this early season of my Christianity. And every free weekend that I had, I would be doing good, man. I just got involved. And just coincidentally enough, the church that he was going to in Hemet, guess what it was? Calvary Chapel. Just the way God led me. And I just happened to be in Calvary Chapels. And so I was in Calvary Chapel in Hemet. And, um, and I was growing. And I was in church on Sunday with my hands raised. And, and then I would have a three-day weekend. I'd have a weekend. And so I'd go get in my car and I'd drive home to L.A. And in the very beginning stage of, of my walk with God, I was, I was living for a weekend like I wasn't even a Christian. I was, went right back to my old spots. I went right back to my old living, doing what I was doing. I was struggling. And, and, and in my heart, I was, I was saying, God, I don't want to beat this person. God, I want you to change me and save me. And even though my heart was crying out, I was struggling in my flesh to walk in the deliverance that God had delivered me in. And one of these trips, I was, I was coming home. I was driving back. It was like a Sunday night, and I'm driving back to Hemet. 
after a weekend of debauchery, a heart that was really wanting to serve God but struggling and walking in my old sins and not leaving them behind. And I drive back into Hemet from L.A., and I had a, you know, AM, FM radio and my 85 Honda Accord hatchback with a busted up front end. And I turned the radio dial back on, and it was like Air One or K-Love. And, you know, we didn't have any. You don't have those. You know, I didn't, must not have turned the radio on for the weekend, so it was still on the Hemet dial. And I turned the radio on as I'm driving back into Hemet for the first time for the weekend. And that Larry Norman song I told you guys about last week comes on. And the first line says, the sun has come. And you've been left behind. And this immediate conviction and, and just a really emotional moment of life hits me. And, and I think that the rapture happened and, and I'm going to hell. And or I'm not going to miss the rapture. And, and I begin to weep and I begin to beg God for forgiveness and, and real repentance in my life. And it scared me. It really scared me. And it was, it was God's timing. It was the Holy Spirit. Even in what part of that song it was in. And when I turned on the radio and it said, the sun has come and you've been left behind. And it has created, I think, a healthy a healthy fear in my heart, in my life, that I want to be ready. Jesus warns here, you don't want to be caught. You don't want to be with your hand in the cookie jar when the rapture happens. You don't want to be drunk. You don't want to be carousing. You don't want to be caught in the cares of this world when the rapture happens. Be ready. Live ready. Amen? So that, that message is clear. And again, it's not a scare tactic. It's, it's a reality tactic. And, and if it comes, you know, and the Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. And there is a healthy fear that every one of you should live with, with, with God as your father. We're not afraid of him because he's evil and he's going to hurt us. But he's a loving father and there is a healthy respect and a godly fear that we should have of God. You know, you guys ever, as, as young men, young women, your mom or dad tells you to be home at 5, 6 o'clock and it's 7.30 and you're walking down the street, you know, and you're, you're getting close to your house. And you know you're an hour and a half late and your dad's in the house and you've got to deal with that. There's a little, little knots in your stomach. You're a little afraid, a little healthy fear of your father. And then um, look, Revelation real quick, because I want to do that one. Let's go four. So again, I'm going to teach through seven chapters of Revelation in 37 seconds. Okay, you ready? <laughs> Revelation chapter four, verse one. After these things, the word is metatauta. Metatauta is another rapture word. So we have Jesus writing seven letters to the churches. And at the end of every letter, Jesus says, if um, he that has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Seven letters, seven report cards. And then he says, after these things, metatauta, after these things, behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet. Again, a mention of the trumpet because at the, at the, at the rapture, there's going to be a great, great trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here. That's a raptus. Okay, come up here is, is the rapture. So Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, the church is removed. From this point on in Revelation, no mention of the church during the detailed seven-year period of the tribulation. Revelation 5 to 19, in detail, God tells us what's going to happen during that seven years. Not one mention of the church again. That same saying, let him, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches is repeated in chapter 13, but the phrase to the church is missing, and it just says he that has an ear, let him hear, because the church is not there nor mentioned anywhere in this time. And then you get to Revelation chapter 6, turn there, and we find the beginning, the, the very first sign of the tribulation. In the beginning of the seven years, it's the absolute wrath of God being poured out upon humankind. Now, look just with me. You've got to catch this. In verse 1 of Revelation um, 6, it says, Now I saw the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it. We call these the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They're four different colored horses that, that release wrath upon the earth. And the first one is a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out and conquering and, and to conquer. In verse 3 it says, And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. And another horse, this one was a red horse, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. 
And then when he opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse and him who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil or the wine. So basically a piece of bread could buy a bag of gold because of famine that's taking place with the release of the third of the third horse of the of the four horsemen and then in verse 7 it says and when he opened the fourth seal i heard the voice of the four living creatures saying come and see and i looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and hades followed him and the power was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword with hunger with death and by the beasts of the earth so a fourth of the earth what percentage is a fourth 25 percent what is your best guess how many people live on planet earth where are we at? Seven billion? Okay, I liked six better. It was easier to cut in fourths than seven, but that's a lot of dead people. A fourth of, of planet Earth dies in the, in the fourth um, seal. And then in the fifth seal in verse nine, and when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then... A white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that if they should rest a while longer until both number of their fellow servants and, the, and their brethren who would be killed as they were completed. And I looked and opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black and sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, probably meteors, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. And the sky receded as a scrolling when it is rolled up. Every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, commanders of the mighty men of every slave and every man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks and in the mountains. And they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath. Somebody has come and who is able to stand. How do you prepare for that? 25% in the beginning are, are murdered. The, the, there's no light. The, it's so bad that people are hiding and, and begging that, that they, would, they would be killed and that they would die through the, the, the famines and the wars and the pestilence and the earthquakes and the calamities and the hailstorms and who knows on and on and on as we you know, look at Revelation chapter 6, what possibly is being unleashed on planet Earth in the very first part of the tribulation period. And, and again, if, if God has not appointed you to wrath, you can't be here for that. We can't be here for that. And, and uh, all right, let's go back. So Matthew 24, 25, we just got a minute left. You guys, we're going to wrap up. Let's, um, trying to decide how to spend my last minute. Let's do this. Turn with me, if you will, real quick. We're going to close with this. Go, turn to Ezekiel. See if you can find Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. And then we'll pick up, there's actually three parables in Matthew 25. The plan was to finish them today. We're not going to do that. We'll get the next two parables next week. Um, but we're going to wrap up because it kind of fits with this last. And then I want to put this kind of whole episode behind us. If, if you're here today and you're tired of hearing me preach pre-tribulation rapture, um, that's okay. Come next week because I'll be done with it next week and we'll move on to something else. You definitely know my opinion now and, and my heart behind it. And um, as I shared last week, I, I don't, I don't want to create division in the body of Christ. That's not my goal. If you're not a pre-tribulation that's not doesn't fit in your your eschatology. That's okay. You know we love you. You're welcome here. You're welcome to be wrong with your theology, and we'll still get around, get along, and 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 be good friends. And you know because it, again it shouldn't be and it can't be. And what I don't want to be guilty of, and I don't want our church to be guilty of, is that that we can't disagree on things and love each other because Jesus didn't say that the greatest commandment was to have perfect eschatology. And I don't have perfect eschatology at all. I'm I, you know without a doubt. You know, when we get to heaven, when Calvary Chapel gets to heaven, when I get to heaven, there's, God's going to tell me where I was wrong. And God's going to tell you where you were wrong and where you're, there's going to be things that we got right, things we got wrong. That's, that's never important to me. I'm not, I'm not a guy. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a minister who believes that it's so important for us to be right. I could care less about being right. What's more important for us as a people is that we love each other. 
That's number one. Then we are right, even if we have good or bad eschatology. And that, that, that goal of one another, another is never an excuse not to be, do what the Bible says a hundred times. Study to show thyself approved. A workman who need not be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Be a student of the word. Preach the word in season, out of season, and on and on. That we're to be people of the word. That we're to have good opinions and good reasons why we believe what we believe. So, hey, the last thing we're going to close with, Ezekiel 36, um, in verse number 24, we talked about this last week, and this is um, something just to wrap up, that we are living in the days that the Bible describes will be the time of Jesus' coming. It'll be the season that, you know, the Bible says of the day and hour, no man knows, but of the times and seasons you shall know. And, and so according to the, the seasons, he said, there's no need that I write to you because you already know. So now in, in Ezekiel 36, what we talked about last week, the number one um, proof that the Bible is true is Israel, is the Jew. And, and the time that we're living in, we've seen Ezekiel 36 and 37 fulfilled in, in 1948, May 14, 1948. Absolutely fulfilled in some of your lifetimes. I was going to say in our lifetimes, but in some of your lifetimes. But real quick, to kind of just wrap up from last week, and then we'll call it a day. It says, for I will, verse 24, for I will take from you among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into what? Your own land. Did that happen? When did that happen? 1948, May 14, 1948. He says, I'll bring you from your countries. Where, where was Israel in 1945? Where was Israel in 1700? Where was Israel in 1550? They were scattered all around the world. They were in Poland. When, when, when um, Hitler wanted to kill the Jews, did he go to Jerusalem and get them? No, they weren't there. He went to Poland and he went to, he got them out of Germany and Europe and he went all over the world and, and, and began to gather the Jews from where they were in order to, to bring them in the Holocaust. Because, and God says in verse 24, there's going to come a time at the end when I will gather all of, of Israel from all the different countries where they are and I'm going to bring them back to their land. We've seen Ezekiel 36 fulfilled in our lifetime. 1948, May 14th was official stamp. And then it says, um, and then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and your idols. Turn with me, if you will, to chapter 37. Turn the page. And then Ezekiel begins to, uh, God begins to speak to Ezekiel, and he says, Then he caused me to pass by them, in verse 2, all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. Talking about the bones. And he said to me, in verse 3, Son of man, can these bones live? And so I answered, I don't know. You're God. You know. And he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will put sinews on you and, and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you that you shall live. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied there was a nose and suddenly rattling and the bones came together bone to bone and indeed I looked and the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them over but there was no breath in them and he said to me prophesy the breath prophesy son of man and say to the breath thus says the Lord God come from the four winds of the earth and breathe on these sins on these slain that they may live and then he said to me in verse 11 son of man these bones are the whole house of very clear very, very, very clear, fulfilled in our lifetime. And then at the time of the end, the next chapter, 38, takes place. And it's, it's a battle called the Gog and Magog invasion where ten nations come against Israel. It's one of the, the beginning marks and one of the great signs of the days that, that Jesus prophesied he would come back. And the great sign is that, that, that Ezekiel 37 was fulfilled before our very eyes. Ezekiel 38 is next. And ten nations will rise up and attack Israel in a battle we call the Gog and Magog invasion. And those ten nations, the Bible tells us who they are. And they're led by Russia, Iran, and Turkey. And seven other nations. And today we have Russia and Iran and Turkey together on Israel's border in Syria. And it's a sign, and a big sign, of living in the days that Jesus said he was coming. So be ready. 
Again, you, you, you can't be, let's stand together. Can't be afraid. Can't be afraid. Let's have the worship team come up. They're going to close us in a song and we're going to um, be able to pray. You, you can't be afraid and, and, and that be your only motivation. It's a good one. After you know, listen, listen, this is important. I know it's, it's time's winding out, but listen. After you know the love of God, when the love of God resides in your heart, when the love of God is what motivates you, it's not, it's not the fear of God, but, but once you've already established how much God loves you in your life, when you know how much your earthly father loves you and cares for you, there, there, there's a healthy fear that goes along with that relationship. But you have to be motivated by the love of Jesus. You have to be called and drawn by the love of Jesus. It's the only thing that's effective, the Bible says. And so today, I want to respond to that, to the love of Jesus. I want to give you that opportunity. I do want to, you know, in, in, in a real way, tell you that it, Jesus warned us. And for every one of us, there should be a test. Are we ready? Are you ready? Are you ready today? If, if Jesus comes back, he says you don't want to be caught carousing and drunkenness in the cares of this world, that you should watch and pray and be ready. So I want to make sure you have that opportunity to be ready today. So um, let, let's pray together. I'm going to ask you guys to close your eyes and bow your heads. And, you know, I don't want to put anybody on the spot. And there's really no magic in anything other than a condition of your heart right now. But if, if you in your heart want to make sure that you're ready for the return of Jesus Christ, that you're a Christian, that you're born again, it's a prayer of faith. And I'm going to lead you in that prayer. And you can pray it. We're going to pray it out loud as a church family, I ask, so that we just, and anybody who wants to pray that, God knows your heart. God knows your life, and, 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 and there's no magic in the words. You can say these words a hundred times and never get saved. You can say no words and get saved because you've surrendered your heart and life to Jesus. It's a condition of your heart. But if your heart today is saying to God, yes, God, I believe in you. I want to become born again. I want to give you 100% of my life and give you all my life, that God is absolutely going to come in your life, and you'll be saved today. And if the rapture happens, when I, when I say amen, you're going up. So let's pray together as a church. Jesus, I ask you to come into my Be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. I know I'm in need of a Savior. And I ask you to save me. I believe that you died on a cross and rose again the third day. And I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. In Jesus' name. Man.